The 2022 Vilcek Foundation Prizes in Dance celebrate artistic excellence and diversity of immigrant dance artists. Congratulations to Soledad Berrio, Tatiana Desarduen, Tamisha Guy, and Leonardo Sandoval. Established in 2000, the Vilcek Foundation raises awareness of immigrant contributions to the United States. Learn more about the prize winner's work at Vilcek, V-I-L-C-E-K, dot co slash dance edit. Check out the 7th Fall for Dance North Festival from September 11th to October 29th. The festival's collection of original live streams will be presented from Toronto, but can be streamed from anywhere. And it includes new works from Guillaume Cote, Azure Barton, Mtutuzuli November, and more. Explore the season at ffdnorth.com. friends and welcome to the dance edit podcast i'm margaret fuhrer and i'm courtney Escoin. we are editors at dance media and in today's episode we will discuss luke jennings excellent piece about choreographer liam scarlett and how his story relates to a larger culture of abuse and silence within ballet we will talk about a dance magazine article that unpacks the challenges that remain for conservative religious dancers, even as the dance world works to become more inclusive. And we'll get into the very epic new trailer for the West Side Story film. Um, first, though, just a quick reminder to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast on your listening platform of choice. We always, always, always love hearing from you. And also make sure to check out the Dance Edit Extra, our new premium audio interview series, because there are now two episodes available and they are fabulous, if we do say so ourselves. The first is with the ballet star and newly minted author James Whiteside, and the second is with the history-making Dancing with the Stars pro Britt Stewart. So the Edit Extra is actually only available on Apple Podcasts, so make sure you're subscribing to it there, or you can head to thedanceedit.com slash podcast to find out a little more about it. All right, now it's time for our weekly dance headline rundown. Let's go. All right, so K-pop superstars BTS made appearances at the United Nations General Assembly in New York City earlier this week as youth ambassadors. In addition to delivering a speech during a conference on climate change, poverty, and inequality that included remarks and anecdotes from young fans from around the world, the group also dropped a new performance video of their recent hit Permission to Dance, which was shot at and outside the UN. So various serious topics, but also really great dancing that came out of it. Just the best. I mean, the thought of like millions of young BTS fans who are now super tuned in to what's happening at the UN General Assembly, the power of cultural ambassadorship. It's very real. Love it. So Monday was a big day for Dance TV. The 30th season of Dancing with the Stars premiered. And yes, that's correct. It is the 30th 3-0 season. How? I know. I know. It's still going. It was especially <laughs> exciting to see Jojo Siwa take the floor with Jenna Johnson as the show's first same-sex partnership, of course. And... Hey, they also got the high score of the night, so that bodes well. And then that same evening, actually, the dance drama The Big Leap, which follows a diverse group of hopefuls auditioning for a dance reality show, that premiered over on Fox. So lots of dance returning to the screen as well as the stage these days. 
And continuing with the dance on TV news, although taking a slight turn, uh, the UK's Strictly Come Dancing seems to already be dealing with COVID complications behind the scenes, as two or possibly three of the show's pro dancers reportedly have not been vaccinated. Uh, This follows the news that one of the pros who had already been paired with a celebrity partner tested positive for COVID last week and will be unable to train with their partner ahead of this Saturday's first live show as they self-isolate. A spokesperson for Strictly stated that they would not comment on speculation regarding someone's vaccination status and that the production would continue to follow government guidelines. You know, big caveat here being there's a lot of eyebrow raising and questions around the UK government's guidelines with COVID as things Mm -hmm. are getting, quote unquote, back to normal. Oh, big woof all around. Uh, In happier news, the Joffrey Ballet is adding four new dancers to its roster this season. We have Brian Bennett and Blake Kessler from the United States, Yoo-chan Kim from South Korea, and Miranda Silvera from Spain. And with those additions, the company now has 43 dancers from 13 countries. It is so nice to be announcing company expansions rather than layoffs. So, so nice. And uh, in a bit of particularly nerdy news that you knew I was going to talk about, uh, Marvel (laughs) dropped the first trailer for Disney Plus's next superhero television series, Hawkeye, which looks to be following the bow and arrow wielding Avenger in New York City around Christmas time. Now, you don't have to be an eagle-eyed or, dare I say, hawk-eyed fan to have caught the Uh, Broadway mark. I know. I had to do it. I'll let it slide. (laughs) So there was in the trailer a Broadway marquee for Rogers the Musical. Yes, as in Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America. We are getting an in-universe Captain America musical in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But close inspection of what appears to be a clip showing a dance number from the musical itself reveals they got some bona fide Broadway and commercial dance performers for the show's like fictional musical. Uh, it includes alums of Hamilton and the Heights, Newsies, Summer of the Donna Summer musical. Like I didn't need another reason to be excited for this to come out in November, but like Marvel sure did give us theater and superhero loving nerds like such a treat. I'm excited. I'm so happy for you, Courtney. I mean, look, I'll be <laughs> honest. This is not quite the type of news that would normally make the cut for the headline rundown, but Courtney made it clear that she would be discussing it regardless. And you know what? I'm happy to indulge geekiness. The world runs on geekiness. Yeah, well, you, do, you know. You do you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that, Margaret. And also, I think it's great because, you know, this was shot during the Broadway shutdown. And so these That's are true. performers who got work getting to do musical theater. Yeah, and hopefully good movie money. Fingers crossed. All right. We are closing out the headline rundown today with an obituary for Jane Powell, star of some of the great MGM musicals. She died last Thursday at age 92. Powell's big break was in Royal Wedding alongside Fred Astaire, in which the two of them played a brother and sister song and dance act, who's basically playing the role of Astaire's real life sister, Adele. But she's probably best known for her starring role in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers with its fabulous choreography by Michael Kidd. I mean... What a legacy. And actually, I think both of those musicals are available to stream right now on multiple platforms, um, definitely on YouTube. Please watch them. So for our first longer discussion segment today, we want to talk about a story that 
a lot of the dance world has been talking about for the past week because it is both an essential read and a horrifying read. So in the London Review of Books, writer Luke Jennings took an in-depth look at learned behaviors and corporate silence in the ballet world, and the part they played in the story of choreographer Liam Scarlett, who died earlier this year following a series of accusations of inappropriate behavior over the past decade. Jennings focused on the Royal Ballet and its school, um, but honestly, a lot of the dancer quotes in this piece felt like they could have come from members of nearly any major company, or honestly, from major sports organizations, too. And at the heart of it all is the idea that in much of ballet, trauma is intergenerational. Teachers and directors hurt dancers because that is what was done to them by their teachers and directors. And then larger ballet institutions find ways to obscure or deny the part that they play in that cycle of trauma. I mean, it's an absolute doozy of a story. I felt like I had to sort of like read it through my fingers, but everyone should read it. Yeah, not the least because Luke Jennings is a fantastic dance writer and reporter. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of really key salient points that I wanted to point out from this doozy of a story. Uh, The first is that every single source that Luke Jennings interviewed for this story asked for anonymity Mm -hmm. because no matter how removed they were from the Royal Ballet and the Royal Ballet School, there was concerns about possible repercussions about publicly talking about their experiences. The second was a quote that was getting circulated a lot on Twitter um, from a core member who also requested to be anonymous, who was uh, at the Royal Ballet School roughly contemporaneously with Liam Scarlett. And this core member said that Scarlett was, quote, passed around like Manon. Everyone knew about it. Everything Liam was later accused of was done to him. It was learned behavior, end quote. It breaks the heart to hear that. I do. I want to clarify that the piece did not mean to, and we do not mean to, belittle or undermine any of the claims of Scarlett's accusers here. Jennings is contextualizing bad behavior. He's not excusing it. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, man, that quote. And the piece does an especially good job articulating why the company's response was so frustrating to so many of us in the dance world, this whole suspending Scarlet, but also maintaining there were, quote, no matters to pursue after the investigation into his behavior. Jennings, I'm just going to read Jennings' quote there because it's it, he gets it perfectly. He had been found innocent and guilty at the same time, while the Royal Ballet, by some sleight of hand, had absolved itself of all responsibility. I mean, that's, that's it. And that's it, and it sounds so much like New York City Ballet's statement following the allegations against Peter Martins, too. The company saying that its investigations, quote, did not corroborate the allegations, but then Martins left the company anyway. And we, from the outside, might never know the whole story. Like in both cases, if there was nothing wrong, why can't we talk about that openly? And if there was something wrong, why can't we talk about that openly? And if the truth is somewhere in the middle, which seems like the most likely scenario, why can't we talk about that openly? We just so desperately need more transparency, more air around these decision-making processes. Yeah, well, and silence only ever protects the abusers at the Mm -hmm. end of the day. Because, you know, that silence is what allows that kind of behavior to flourish. It's what allows it to go without being reported. And it's what creates the environments in which victims and survivors feel like they can't step forward and report it without severe negative repercussions. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, at this point, 
it seems like greater openness would probably also be beneficial for the institution's reputation, which it's which seems like the thing that insiders are are trying to protect here. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, we should say that it's not like we know all the answers. These are huge, complicated problems that are impossible to grasp fully from the outside. Um, but please do read Jennings' piece. We've linked to it in the show notes. It does cast light where little light has been cast before. It's invaluable. Whew, that was a lot. Okay. In our second segment today, we want to discuss a recent dance magazine story that gets into what life is like as a conservative religious dancer. And as we've talked about quite a bit, working to improve diversity, equity, and inclusion has become a priority for many dance leaders, especially recently. But for the most part, the U.S. dance community is a pretty secular place. And sometimes dancers who are Muslims or Orthodox Jews or evangelical Christians, for example, can find it difficult to practice their faith while making a career in dance. This piece did a good job sharing some of their perspectives. Yeah, and I think uh, what you're getting on a little bit in your intro, Margaret, and something that really comes to the fore and that I was thinking about a lot reading this is there's this kind of fascinating and strange dichotomy that has come into play. And I think particularly over the last few years, where, you know, the dance world tends to be very secular and tries to be an open and accepting place on the outside, nevertheless, doesn't always feel accepting to people who Mm -hmm. have religious practices and religious beliefs. And, you know, some of that can be linked to the way that uh, being conservatively Christian has become aligned with also being conservative politically and Mm -hmm. how very, very, very not in favor of that the dance world has been over the last several years in particular. Mm -hmm. Things have become very inflamed in that way. Yeah, when religion gets tangled up in politics, that's almost always bad news for art, generally. Generally speaking, yeah. Yeah, which is you know, frankly, something that's been going back centuries, mm-hmm. um, just old in stories. different <laughs> ways. It's old stories being retold again and again with new technologies. And so I think it's it's something that I think maybe a lot of us haven't necessarily thought about, the idea that like, oh, okay, we're trying to make the dance world a welcoming place for everyone, regardless of uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, all of those things. But, like, if we can do that, can we also make it a place that is welcoming and safe for people who do have religious beliefs, who do have religious practices that maybe don't necessarily jive? Which, and I think it maybe comes from a place of, like, you know, those of us who are from places where religion, a particular religious belief has been used to shut out certain sectors of the population. I am particularly Mm -hmm. talking to my queer fam here. Mm -hmm. The response to finding out that someone has a religious practice is often going to be, oh, no, am I going to be safe around this person? Which is not always the case. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, because dance is a spiritual thing for many artists who are involved in it. It's it's a transcendent experience. It connects us to a higher plane. It seems mm. like there are natural connections between dance and religion that one would hope would make dance a welcoming place, an empathetic place for religious artists. But it's true. When we're talking about DEI initiatives, you have to include faith in those initiatives. Well, and also, I think particularly in the United States, you know, oftentimes federal holidays and holidays and calendars that companies follow align with the Christian calendar. Mm -hmm. Whereas like if you're a Jewish artist who wants to take off, you know, following Passover or for Shabbat, or if you're a Muslim artist who needs to fast during Ramadan, 
it's not necessarily built into the performance schedule or the rehearsal schedule or the mm-hmm. cultural consciousness to like make that easy for you to be able to do that. It's some it's like extra steps that have to be taken yeah. on the part of the artists. And so how can we be more conscious of that and think about that and make our spaces more welcoming so that everyone can show up and practice both dance and their religious beliefs in an authentic and generous way. Mm-hmm. And in the Dance Magazine story, writer Rebecca Ritzel does a really great job sort of teasing out the complexities of the subject. And she talks to a whole range of conservative religious dancers about their experiences in the art form. So please do give it a read. We'll link it in the show notes. All right. Last up today, we got to talk about the new West Side Story trailer. (laughs) It's the first official trailer for the upcoming Steven Spielberg film, although there's been a teaser, maybe two teasers. Mm -hmm. Am I getting that wrong? Uh, Seems about right. So it dropped last week. It actually even aired during the Emmys on Sunday night. A lot of people have seen it. It is a full two minutes long, and it gives us a few more peeks at Justin Peck's choreography and at the performances by some of our dance favorites, like Ariana DeBose and David Alvarez and... Rita Moreno, who's a national treasure. Um, It's also noteworthy for what is not in it, or rather who is not in it much. And it definitely hits every single one of its marks. Like, I was full on ugly crying watching it. Spielberg knows exactly what he is doing. But my personal reaction to it was also a little complicated. And I think some other people shared that feeling, too. Yeah, I think Starting with, like, the positives here, one, the women in this movie, I am showing up for the women in this movie. Rachel Ziegler (laughs) sounds amazing. Ariana DeBose is serving looks and moves, and she's a superstar, and she's just going to be more of one after this, and don't even Mm -hmm. get me started on Rita Marino. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Living for it. That's incredible. The cinematography, exquisite. The production Mm -hmm. design, Mm, so good this is a spielberg film it's got the budget to show it it looks fan freaking tastic with two snaps and a smile to quote tice diorio years and years and year ago on so you think you can dance <laughs> Ooh, um, that's a call back my goodness <laughs> yeah i'm with you I, I mean for the women especially for almost i mean nearly every single member of the cast any even these tiny glimpses are getting their performance just makes me so much more excited to see the whole thing. The one shot of Ariana DeBose with her eyes glistening, walking away from something that may or may not have been that devastating rape scene. Like I, I was already crying. Then I was crying harder. Yep. It's so much. Um, It's interesting to me that, you know, Spielberg has said he's not remaking John Robbins movie. This is his adaptation of the stage play, but it is almost startling And I think I said this when we were talking about an earlier teaser, too. It's startling just how strongly the colors and the costumes and the cinematography and to an extent the location choices evoke the older film. Mm. The homage is so, so clear. And from the little that we've seen of the choreography, it seems like that might be the case there, too. It's going to feel super duper Robbins, probably with some smart updates because Justin Peck is a smart choreographer. Yeah. Which we'll also say, like, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, when they said Justin Peck was doing the choreography for this movie, I was like, yes, Mm -hmm, correct choice. mm -hmm. Like, as all of his work at New York City Ballet has shown, he is the clear spiritual successor as a choreographer to Jerome Robbins in terms of the way the dancers and his ballets relate to each other on stage Mm -hmm. and the way he approaches sneaker ballets and incorporates jazz influences, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on for ages about this. So 
very smart choice of choreographer for this. Yeah, he understands that from the inside out, that whole way of moving. Um, so starting to, to tilt a little bit yeah. negative now. The Hollywood Reporter called the trailer grandiose, which I thought was like the perfect mm. bit of shade, <laughs> just the tiniest bit of shade, um, because it is a huge grand project. It deserves a big epic trailer, and yet it is advertising its own greatness in a way that makes me feel vaguely anxious it's not going to live up to its own hype. And I, I mean, we got, so we have to talk about Ansel Elgort. Ansel Elgort. Yep. Because he's almost not in the trailer. You don't hear him sing. I think he says three lines. Yep. Is that deliberate, given that last year a woman alleged that he sexually assaulted her when she was 17? Yeah, well, and I know I saw some comments to the effect of like, hey, like, you know, when the Kevin Spacey news broke a couple years ago, they laid down cash to do reshoots in a film that was coming out mm -hmm. so that Kevin Spacey was no longer in it. Why couldn't we do that with Ansel Elgort? Which I think studio finances, contracts, finances, particularly with the pandemic, uh, I think there's a number of reasons why that probably was not the choice that was made. But it is fascinating to see a trailer cut where one of the leads is virtually not present whatsoever. Because I think what's intriguing, right, is that like the people who are paying attention to that and who are going to notice that are the ones who already know like, oh, well, Ansel Elgort's in this. What the hell? Mm -hmm. Whereas the mm -hmm. average audience who maybe doesn't know about all of that is not going to see this trailer and, and be like, where's Tony? Yeah, it mm -hmm. wouldn't affect their perception of whether or not they were going to go see it. So it's mm -hmm. like a attempt at trying to have your cake and eat it too, I think. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's just the sense that we're all rooting so hard for this film. Just don't mess it up. Don't mess it up, people, please. <laughs> well, and I, here's the thing. Is that like, it's grandiose? Yes. But I feel like if anyone, like, you know, like of all, all our filmmakers, I'm kind of like, you know what? It's Spielberg. He's... Oh, sure. He's got the track record. Like, if anyone can take a swing like this. And also, Tony Kushner did the screenplay, which is nuts. I forgot yeah, about that. I know. But it's Tony Kushner. And I felt like you could actually, you could hear a little bit of that in the trailer, too. It's Especially in, um, I think there's a line that Riff got that sounded like Tony Kushner trying to play into some Trump-era themes. The line about, I wake up to everything I know, mm. either getting sold or wrecked or taken over by people I don't like. Yep. I was like, oh, that sounds like Kushner, and that sounds smart. That sounds like the kind of update that might make the film feel relevant in a way that it needs to to sort of justify its own existence today. Well, and especially because, going back to the original film, the portrayal of Puerto Ricans in that film? Mm-mm. Writing -mm. some historical wrongs, yeah. Fingers crossed. Fingers so crossed. Especially because rooting for the performers, for the most part, so hard. Like, the theater people in this, the dancers in this, we are in your corner rooting for you so hard. Yep. That is about it. <laughs> and that is it for us this week, too. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Dance Edit.